Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 368, and our guest today is Stuart, the owner of Monarch Taxidermy. Stuart and his team at Monarch do all kinds of taxidermy for hunters worldwide, and their work is amazing. I came across Monarch as I was looking into taxidermists for my upcoming mountain goat hunts, and then found out that I personally knew some friends who had used Monarch for taxidermy needs on goats and other species. I wanted to basically speak with Stuart and Monarch, and I figured we might as well do this publicly. Not only do we talk about taxidermy, but in this episode in particular, we talk about how to transport your game to taxidermists, how to get it home from the field from remote destinations such as Alaska, and much more. Stuart had some great advice for, yes, using your local taxidermist, but then also understanding how you can use a taxidermist who is maybe states away from you. So this episode covers quite a bit in terms of logistics, and in a future episode, we're going to chat more about how to work with a taxidermist that is not local to you. Along the way, I am definitely asking some personal questions about my mountain goat hunt and the taxidermy work that I very well am going to have Monarch do for me. So this is both informational, whether you are local to a taxidermist or whether you're looking for future work that may be very far from you. There's just so much practical information in this show that I'm sure will help you out. Before we dive into the conversation, I wanted to remind you guys, as always, that if you do have questions for us, you can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave a message, and you can use whatever device you're on currently to leave us an audio message that we can answer on a future Q&A episode that we do as part of our Monday Minute episodes. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you could share it with a friend or leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app you are using. Hit pause and do that now, then come right back. Here's this conversation with Stuart. Well, Stuart, I am excited to chat with you for the podcast today. Um, I don't know you and clearly actually don't know a ton about the work that you guys do, but, uh, we got to talk in basically because, um, my mountain goat hunts and the potential of taxidermy for that. And I personally know some guys who've used Monarch taxidermy, your company. So, uh, to kick things off, tell us a little bit about that, kind of with personal background first. So, uh, my name is Stuart Farnsworth. Um, uh, September marks my 34th year in taxidermy. Um, I, I've done a little bit of everything. I started out um, like most taxidermists do um, as an apprenticeship working for a local shop and kind of you cut your teeth on that. And a lot of guys stay with that and they run a career that way and that's totally cool. I aspired to try to do some, something more with it. And so um, after just under five years of doing that type of work, um, I left hometown and went to work for a big shop, biggest one I could find in the West at that time, and um, started at the bottom there and then worked my way up um, to ultimately being the, the general manager of that company um, after about 12 years. 
And then in 2006, I decided I wanted to live somewhere else and took that knowledge base and then relocated my family up to Montana. And it was uh, really not so much about a business choice of location, but a lifestyle choice of location because my clients I had were already um, established all over the country. And so I felt like it really didn't matter where I was. And so, um, you know, I chose Montana for that. And I've now grown the business to, uh, we have 12 full-time employees. Um, So you would consider that in the world of taxidermy, a medium, large shop. Um, Yeah, there's certainly bigger ones. And uh, the vast majority are are one-man operations or two-person operations usually. Um, so that's kind of my background. And I'm also a really avid hunter too. Um, and that's like most taxidermists that kind of becomes the driving force of the career choice. Sometimes it's not always the best marriage of hobby and, and, and work. But, um, for me, um, starting off as a kid, going to natural history museums, seeing the mounted animals and then having a, a family that hunted, um, and start hunting as a child. And um, it just kind of solidified my choice to do it. And essentially, it's all I've ever done. Um, I did stop and get a business degree along the way um, <laughs> just to help out with, with running a business. But it's really about the hands-on work. And I still do the hands-on work every day. I'm still, act- I'm still actively mounting. I don't mount as much because I have so many office duties, you know, and so much customer service duties. Um, but what we've also... Uh, dovetailed into is a lot of trophy room work. And so that has us traveling a lot, meeting some very cool, interesting people and actually doing a lot of, you know, really custom design and installation of maps, trees, murals, displays, dioramas, which is kind of my love because it goes back to my days as a kid seeing that natural history museum and just being fascinated with it. So like literally make a career choice at like eight years old, you know, and that's all, that's all I've done. So that's, that's kind a of my, really cool connection. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's been kind of my, my life's work. Yeah. Wow. The, the trophy room, cause I've seen some of your guys work on, you know, social media and things like that and see these installations is, is a lot of that for private individuals and private homes, or do you guys also do more At public? At this point, all of it is. Um, I do, I have an interesting th- twist coming up where, I've got some clients now that are starting to age out of it personally. And so there's this big question of what to do. Um, And now I have two individuals who are giving back and not only donating collections, which is easy to do, but actually funding museum projects, display projects in either their hometowns or in places that are meaningful to them. And all of it done to inspire youth. And all of it um, self-funded by individuals. So we're seeing kind of this resurgence of not an old school museum setup, but, you know, some really um, great guys taking some of their personal wealth and reinvesting it back to try to encourage the next generation of kids and young people to see that um, basically to give them the spark that I got, you know, that first museum. And That's what I was so, thinking. It's like full circle back to you as an eight-year-old. It really is. And, and as a passion for me, and, and so we're diving into this. So I've got two projects, one starting in Washington State, which we will is actually broken ground. 
And so we will actually be doing some of the, the initial work on it um, coming up this winter. And then another one that'll be in Indiana, that's probably two to three years out, depending on such construction and permitting and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I hope that kind of continues, you know, that there's a few of those around the country. But um, to answer your question, almost all of them are um, would be private collections for, for private residences. Um, I did kind of get my start in it, though, working on some of the big sporting stores, you know, like a lot of guys do. And you get a little flavor of that that deal. Um, but I'm not doing that currently. Strictly my private clients. I wanted to ask originally, and I think a lot of this question may have been answered, but we just talked about, but having been doing this for decades at this point, like what are, what's one of your favorite things still about taxidermy or like what still keeps you passionate about it? And again, that was a question I planned to to ask that we probably already talked about a bit, but anything that stands out that you didn't say? Well, I mean, it's, it's greater than that. I mean, that, I mean, as far as taxidermy go, um, as a career, it is a bit of a labor of love. Um, for the most part, you know, it's not the kind of business that you can, you know, would get rich doing, or there's some, you know, we do it because we love it. Um, working with the animals and the way I've kind of tailored my business to keep the passion alive for me is um, pushing the envelope with the type of work we're doing, the type of clientele we go after, the, the type of projects we take on, the customization of those projects, um, the diversity of species we work on. Um, you know, there's some guys that are very content to do, you know, one thing or five things. Um, that was just never my bag. And so to me, it's kept it fresh my whole life. Um, and uh, I'm really never tired of it. And I've got quite a few guys that work for me, um, and, and ladies, that um, seem to feel the same way. You know, it's, it's more than a job. And when you're traveling and you're meeting all these people and you're doing these installations, uh, it keeps it exciting, you know, definitely keeps it exciting. Yeah, that's cool. It's probably hard to choose, but what's one of your your favorite hunts personally? And then in what way has like taxidermy helped you kind of remember, relive that hunt? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, um, for hunts, it's really tough. Now, I, I was thinking about this. I, I think at this point in my hunting career, um, I want to say I've harvested maybe 70 different species around the world. And which is a drop in the bucket for most of my clients. But it's a pretty good smattering. The 70 is only a drop in the bucket. It is. <laughs> but it's a pretty good smattering for a blue-collar tax service guy, right? Yeah. Who's got to go to work every single day. Um, and who has to kind of go out these hunts the hard way, right? Um, but the way I look at hunting is this, and what I love about hunting, and it dovetails into the tax story for me personally, is um, the type of hunt I choose to do in a given time in my life is, is, is kind of dictated by what my soul needs at that time. So, for instance, sometimes you feel like I do anyway that you just you just need to be physically challenged you know are, are you getting older are you getting soft are you getting weak you know and and that tends to be the time i start looking up goat huts mm-hmm. you know? um there are times where i need a vacation like i i want to get away like i want to be relaxed and or i want to take my spouse i want to take my wife and so then i start looking at safari 
you know, go on African safari? What's the weather like? You know, do I want to be, sometimes you want to be miserable. You know, you want to be uncomfortable and sometimes you don't. And so each of those hunts that I've done um, usually has coincided with a time in my life where I needed whatever that was. Now, sometimes you draw a tag and you just go what that is, right? You need to fix it for you. But when I'm looking at hunts to actually book and do, um, it's kind of twofold. So it's like, what's the adventure I'm seeking? Now, if I had to say um, to to pick a hunt, um, the hunt I've gone back to the most and the ones that I think have been the most soul enriching for me as a, just a solo person out there um, is all the Northern Canadian stuff that I've done. So like um, NWT um, and, and British Columbia. So I've done British Columbia twice, um, moose, goat, caribou, um, wolf um, uh, in, in NWT did moose and caribou. Um, those hunts I really love because I love the scenery of it. Um, and I just think it's, I don't know the entire adventure of it. For me being in Montana, I drive into Canada. Yeah. So like BC, I drive through Banff, through Jasper, you know, stay somewhere. I bring the meat home. I bring my animals home that way. I'm so connected with those animals at that point. Right. And then that ties into doing the tax room because I'm actually doing my own tax room. And so sometimes going on those hunts is another way to keep the, the, the business side of tax to refresh for me because I'm now inspired again. Like I've seen this animal in its living state and then you can't help but get this, this awe for it. Right. I mean, I think if you don't, you probably shouldn't be a hunter, you know, in most cases, but you, you see it, you see the terrain and I'm inspired to recreate the habitat. I'm inspired to recreate the motion. You know, you, when you see that like that, um, I think it's important that if you're going to do tax trimming on a big scale, like we do, you you got it. You got also be a hunter, you know, because you got to relate to what your clients are feeling. Because if you lose that, then you lose a lot. Yeah. Um, so those 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 two those two province hunts are, are really um, special to me. And then I have to say that, um, and maybe a lot of your listeners, you know, especially if they're Western hunters, don't do it. But you can't disregard a good safari. And it's a totally different vibe. And that's that hunt where when I need to just recharge my batteries for business, I go on safari. And usually you can time it for good weather. And the, the beauty of safari that I love is as a hunter, you're seeing lots of game. You have lots of stalking opportunities. And there's not that, that pressure of that one shot, right? So that's the hard thing about like a sheep hunt is it all comes down to that you know, you may have done all this work and all this hiking and all this preparation. Your guys done everything right to get you in shot. And now you have all this pressure up one second. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure for anybody. But on safari, you get that opportunity multiple times. And it actually helps hone your skills as a hunter too. Um, and so so those those two things are probably my favorite types of hunts I, that I do. Mm-hmm. And the ones that I kind of go back to. You know, so if I go up north, if I do a North American hunt at this point, it's probably going to be up north, um, maybe for, for grizzly or sheep, something like that. But it'll be something like that. And I will probably continue to go on safari periodically as long as I'm able, you know, to do it. So those are kind of my, those are my, those are my favorite too. But I've done bears. I've done the whole thing. Hound hunts. But those, those two types of hunts are my favorite for sure. Yeah, that's really neat. So 
I think we have such a diversity of um, listeners. Obviously, everyone's here because they love hunting in some form. Some guys are diehard for certain species, but even all over the map on experience and not everyone listening is an international hunter. I mean, some guys listening to this may be in Ohio dreaming of their first Western hunt. You got guys who are going to safari, you guys who are going on sheep hunts. It's just all over the place. And you know, when it comes to taxidermy, there's obviously such a wide variety of things. And you guys clearly are on the higher end of that, uh, more specialty, more custom. And I found myself with this goat hunt for context, like going personally, I, you know, when it comes to standard big game, like I've just, for me, it's all about the experience and the adventure. And I love that, uh, whether it's taxidermy or something as simple as a Euro mount can help me remember and relive that. But when it comes to me, like my, this mountain goat hunt, my first guided hunt, um, things like that, I'm like, man, there, there's such a unique species that's such a unique opportunity for me. And so it's like pushed me to that next level of considering how it's do I want to remember that, right? It's, like, made, it's made you think, right. Yeah. So that's all context for me to go, okay, for mountain goat, like it's a, it's a different species. It's unique. Some taxidermists haven't done it or haven't done much of it. Um, And for me, it's, I feel, especially that species, like there's a, it's almost a disservice to like not do something like a life size on a mountain goat for me. Um, Anyway, that's all context for me going, all right, let me, let me expand my picture of taxidermy, consider anything being on the table um, and look at, for example, people outside of my home base, right? And you said that like you, for your clientele, it, it maybe doesn't matter so much where you're at because it's, I'm sure you're getting local guys. In fact, I know local guys to you who that's the reason I'm talking to you today who brings stuff in, but then you're getting stuff from all over the world shipped to you. And that's even some of the topics I want to talk about um, in terms of logistics and transport. But I guess I know this is maybe not a fair question to ask you, but there's so much out there. Like where does a hunter begin when it comes to researching, speaking with taxidermists, where do you even start? Yeah. So here's what I would say to that. Um, And I, I don't think enough people actually are, honest with themselves up front and um, take it seriously enough. And unfortunately, um, preserving that animal oftentimes becomes the afterthought. And if, if I could impart anything to your listeners is um, decide what kind of hunter you are and how important a, a, a lasting memory portion of it is, taxidermy of some form. And then based on that assessment, okay, um, then start preparing yourself for that second phase of it, right? That third phase, actually. So here's here's a way of looking at it, right? So you have the pre-hunt work, body conditioning, gear purchasing, preparation, um, getting comfortable with your firearm or your bow, whatever it is. Um, and then you have, so you have that whole end of it. And I think a lot of times you have people, if you're in the industry long enough, you'll see guys that put this huge emphasis on that. And they're strictly, maybe they're not doing guided hunts, so they're waiting for draws. Or you live in a state that doesn't have a lot of opportunity. So some of those guys are heavily weighted on the, the front 
the, the physical conditioning and the gear preparation, right? And because that's all they can do. Yeah, so that's that what they can control. Yep. It's what they can control. And it becomes a big part of their life, right? You see a lot of guys that don't hunt, not because their own wishes. It's just the way it's worked out. They can't hunt much. So you have all this excessive gear. Some guys will poke fun at these guys. You know, I don't think it's fair. But um, so you have that part of it. Then you have the actual hunt, that experience. And most people say that's the most important thing. But it still is part of it. And so a lot of us will say, well, even if we're not successful, you know, the experience is what matters. And, and, and for, for a lot of it, I think that's very true. And depending on the type of hunt you do, that ratio may be different too. So going out with your, your, your father or your son or your daughter and doing the deer hunt, it may not matter a lot about whether you're successful or not. You know, it's all about the experience and seeing them and being in the wilderness and all that kind of thing. But when you draw that once in a lifetime sheep tack, if we're honest, we want to collect that animal because were ne- we really aren't going to get another shot. Mm-hmm. So the actual harvest does become more important than maybe some other hunt did. So then that's the second part of it. And then the third part of it is, what do I do with it after it's done? Do I want it? How do I preserve it? Do I want the skull? Do I want the mount? What kind of mount? And some of that you have to condition yourself to think, I can't wait till it's on the ground because there's some choices that need to be made. I have to have some mental preparation. And so the first thing that a person has to do, a hunter has to do is decide um, what, what's my taxidermist relationship going to be. So what I would tell anybody is this, if you are the type of person who is um, a, let's call it a, a, a local or regional hunter where Thereby, all the hunts you do, you're driving to. Okay, so that's a lot of us. It's certainly where I started. Absolutely. For that person, your best, my best advice is find a tax service that is near you. doesn't have to be in your town, but somewhere within a reasonable driving distance to you. Okay, so for instance, just using myself as an example, Montana is a, is a big hunting state okay a lot of opportunity um and the cities are fairly just fairly widely dispersed okay so for the local hunters i call them local hunters, or regional hunters, people who are driving um you know we may have clients in missoula which is 120 miles away bozeman which is 100 miles away great falls butte billings 250 miles um and these will be guys that that you need that local taxidermist or semi-local taxidermist because when you harvest that elk or that antelope or that deer, you, you don't have a guy with you typically. And now you have a perishable hide carcass that needs to be cared for. Okay. And so it's in the hunter's best interest to find taxidermists they like in their home range okay, mm-hmm. for those hunts. You also have things like chronic wasting issues that were never a thing when I was a regional hunter. You know, when I would go with my father to Colorado or to Wyoming, um, we would just cross the border. Now you can't. So you kind of need to have a taxidermist relationship with somebody who's close to you. You always kind of need that, even if you're an international. You still need that guy that handles, that you trust, that handles that local-ish regional driving distance work. Um, And how you would pick that person, in my mind, is um, because most of those people aren't advertising, right? 
They don't, they're not in that echelon where you're going to see them running a full page ad on publication. They're, you're not going to see them going to Wild Sheep Show or Grand Slam Publicist or Safari Club or Dallas, that kind of thing. So you're going to have to root them out a little harder, right? Um, you can start in your hometown, but this is where I would say word of mouth. And when you see a friend or someone in your area that has a mouth that you like, then go interview that person. See their shop. Is it clean? Do they appear to be organized? Is it just them? Do they have a team? What's the rest of the work on the wall look like? What's the turnaround time? Can you live with it? Um, there's some downsides to that single operator. You know, if that single operator gets sick, the work stops. Mm. If that single operator goes on vacation, the work stops. If that single operator gets divorced, you may never see your trophies again. Okay. So there's some downsides to it. But the upsides are you have a friend who's close by that you can just drop things off to. And that's really important. Um, on the other side of the coin, you have the international or more widely traveling countries, guys who are um, doing guided hunts. So now they're doing these guided hunts like your, like your goat, where there's going to be somebody to help you there with the field prep. There's going to be somebody there to help with logistics. You've now traveled out of your drivable sphere. So now where that goat goes is much less important to you as far as logistics go, because it's already going to travel somewhere, you know? And so ideally you would have, if you're that type of hunter, you develop a relationship with a, a bigger shop and that bigger shop has more diverse experience. Uh, should the USDA approved, they handle your international shipments uh, should have good connections with an import broker, um, should have clout with a tannery um, to get better service, you know, should have the uh, ability to handle everything you do, in my opinion, outside of that local sphere. And those types of tax journalists, you can usually go to a show, which is lots of them all over the country, and actually talk to them and, and look them up on social media. Um, and it's, it's a little tricky. I think Mark with um, referrals to a point because you gotta be careful who you get in the referral from because taxidermy is a, is a, is a, is all about taste. And you may have a friend whose taste differs from yours and they may love what they get. And you may be unhappy with it. And some people have a hard time seeing the difference. And in some ways, if you're, if you're a person that can't see the difference, it gives you more options because mm -hmm. you have a greater variety of stuff, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're a little bit of a connoisseur, if you, if you study wildlife, and you know anything about wildlife, then you actually have to really be more careful. And it is such a personal choice, right? Artwork is a personal choice. What one guy likes is a painting or one person likes the painting or, or clothing, or fashion, or furniture, whatever it is, may not be your taste. So it's a kind of a personal journey to find that taxidermist. But I, I, I think everybody should have a relationship with the taxidermist. And it can be a lifelong relationship. And I certainly have uh, hunters, clients that have been with me for almost my entire career, you know, at least the last 20, 25 years. And we know each other. I know what their expectations are. They know what to expect from me. They can call me. They can talk to me directly as an owner. They can be honest with me if they're happy or not happy. And so, um, and these are people that I really do my best to take care of because they're like extended family to me. 
and I don't want to let them down. And even though I have employees and I have to express to my employees what this hunter's expressed to me, and that's my job as an owner is to, because I can't do it all, but I'm that liaison between the hunter and the person doing the work. If it's not directly me um, to make sure they're satisfied. So I would encourage every hunter to, to find those two relationships and make it a priority, just like you make it with the gear selection and preparation and choosing the guides and the experience. Be prepared what you want on the other end um, because it, it makes a big difference. And here's the other thing that I would really encourage serious hunters to do. Um, and, I, and, I, and I go back to this all the time. I see guys who are just phenomenal shooters and, and the wilderness, wilderness athletes. Guys are just so conditioned. They can go anywhere, do anything, but they don't know how to skin an animal. And it's like, boy, we're missing something. Take a little bit of that energy and, and teach yourself because it's not exclusive to a tax or a guide. You can learn it too. And if you're hunting in these different locations, it, it really behooves you to know how to do it yourself because I can't tell you how many times my mount has been improved dramatically because of my ability to assist or completely do the proper field care. And so I would really highly encourage hunters to, to get involved with that. And, um, and that can be started with that local taxidermist. Yeah. Sit in, have them let you watch caping out a deer. People say, well, why would I do that? I just bring it to you. Well, when you're on the mountain, you don't want to carry that extra weight. Sometimes you don't need that bottom jaw. Sometimes you don't want that extra full skull. You know, you 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 want to reduce that load. Um, yeah, it's good to know how to take a cape off a moose skull. If you've ever had to carry a moose with a head intact, right? So much good information in there, and it's helpful to hear that. Like both of those taxidermist relationships are helpful. That regional, and then maybe that that destination type hunt and that taxidermist. Um, Cause at the end of the day, I think that's where most guys are going to live. They're going to be just like myself who does a ton of relatively local regional hunts. And then maybe he gets these opportunities. Like I have this fall to go to Alaska and um, that opens up a whole new opportunity as we just talked about with taxidermy. So that's really helpful to hear. But well, like, for instance, if you have a good relationship with somebody in your area, you're in Boise. So let's say you find somebody that's maybe in Boise or maybe, you know, even 100 miles away. Let's do, you know, these are important things. So what's, what's a 100-mile drive? You build that relationship, you have that person. But that person um, may not have the experience to help you get a goat or a New Zealand shipment or whatever you do. They, they just simply aren't, it's not a fair expectation of them because just because they're a taxidermist doesn't mean, um, you know, for instance, Every electrician is not going to plumb a high, is not going to wire a high rise, right? It may be a different type of firm that handles that, who's got that experience, who knows how to work with that type of product. And taxidermy is largely the same. And what you have to be careful as a hunter is, most taxidermists will take on whatever work you ask them to do, even if they're not qualified, because they like to have a crack at. It. Well, that'd be fun, right? I know one of those. I'll do one of those. You have to be careful though, because do you, do you want somebody learning with you? Yeah. Right. And you may get an animal that for you is the only one you will get. 
And the rate of regret we see after the fact can be huge because you get this back and you go, hmm, made a mistake. And it's not like choosing the wrong suit or the wrong car. It's like choosing the wrong spouse. It's, it's hard to unwind that, right? And so um, in a lot of cases, especially with a predator, a bear, a cat, leopard, the taxidermy is damaged. The trophy's lost. And with a deer or an elk or a moose, you can get another cave. Right. At, at great expense, but you can do that and do it over again. And we do it all the time. So um, be, you know, I would say be careful and um, know when to use which service, you know. And I would also say as a piece of advice, um, you know, I know some guys that are whitetail hunters, you know, just whitetail fanatics. And they're shooting three, four whitetails a year in various states. And that's really their lifeblood. That's what they do. I would highly encourage a guy like that, a gal like that, to find a phenomenal whitetail tax service, no matter where in the country they were. Now, you still may need that local person, right? Because you got chronic wasting issues, but you can hire out to have something caped if you don't. But ideally, you, if all you're doing is whitetails, you learn how to cape them off, you learn how to cut the skull, remove the brain, and you can ship that anywhere in the country you want yourself. And if you haven't, a taxidermist, maybe they're in the Midwest or the East Coast, wherever they are. And they do good work and they know what you like and you like what they do. Send them all those deer. And if you're a sheep guy, whatever, that's all you do. What I've tried to do, um, because it's how I like to hunt, is, you know, people have asked me a lot of times, well, what do you specialize in? Right? Well, my specialty is being as good as I possibly can be with almost everything. And that's hard. Um, but just like with my hunting, I'm not content to just hunt one thing. I want to hunt as much as I can. I want to go as many places as I can. I want to learn as much as I can. And so what my specialty is personally is to be a one-stop shop for that type of hunter who goes multiple places. And so they can then say, I'm confident my taxidermist is going to do a great job for me wherever I go. And we may not be the best deer person. I'd be the first to admit it. There's guys that are way better. But for a lot of my clients, they might be picking up a deer or two. But they might also be doing safaris and sheep and bears and everything else. And what we provide is that overall... 90 percentile mount across the board yeah that's been my that's been my goal in taxidermy and i'm sure there's others that do the same thing there's others that specialize in that one thing so again like what i was saying before is like figure out what kind of hunter you are and then tailor that taxidermist need to that you know and where do you want to go you know if you're that kind of hunter now but you aspire to this then start building a relationship with the taxidermist who can help you with your future endeavors and don't get bogged down with the guy that can't handle where you're going. Because if he's stuck here and you're going there, find the taxidermist that's there, where you're going. And they'll help you get there because they know, we know where good stuff comes, how to get trophies in and out, you know, provide services that 
or is it like a hunting partner for you? So, but I do want to talk about some of the logistics on um, whether it's international or say like this mountain goat hunt I have in Alaska and uh, transport. But what you mentioned about that whitetail guy, maybe that clicked with a listener of I'm only the regional hunter, but I've only stuck with taxidermists. I know because they're local, because it's what I feel like I can do because it's convenient, but I'm not happy. So I can imagine that there's guys listening to this going, oh, I need to broaden my net and consider taxidermy. And maybe that just means shipping that whitetail or whatever two states over. Yep. How does that happen? So like, I'm not saying every detail, but you mentioned if you can cape it, if you can scold the right way, et cetera. So like very practically, if a guy wants to, is it UPS, FedEx, whatever, a skull and cape just within the US, lower 48 tips and how does that happen? Common is a lower 48. Common sense prevails. Okay. So, and as far as this logistics go, one thing I want to point out is there's been a huge shift in where taxidermists are located. So just a little quick context before we talk about logistics, because I think this is kind of an interesting tidbit that people don't think about. In the, in the, in the 70s, Safari Club International started in Los Angeles, California. In Los Angeles and the, the, the Bay Area of California held some of the biggest taxidermy shops in the country. Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Um, they've all but gone away in the last 50, in my lifetime, those shops are gone. The, the politics, the, the cost of living in those coastal areas, and this goes to the East Coast too, but I'm more of a West Coast person, Western person, so I, I'm more familiar with this. So you have state of California, Oregon, Washington, you're talking what, 60 million people more just in those three states. There's a lot of hunters in those three states. They have very little options, right? Because they're just the tax rates went away. It's it's an unfriendly climate to do business. Um, the tanneries have gone away from regulation. Um, the, the the cost of owning land and shops and facilities. Tax is a bulky product. We can't do it out of you can't do it out of the garage. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Big shop can't. It's hard to function, right? Um, hard to attract employees to those places. It's expensive to live. So. You have a lot of people, a big chunk of population on the two coasts that really have no choice but to, to figure out a way to ship somewhere. So it's not, a, it's not a small problem. It's a big problem for people. So logistics are huge. So when we talk about lower 48, um, common sense prevails. So A, we, we can't, you got to know the laws of your state and the state you're going through. You can't ship. Typically, I think as a rule of thumb, you should just automatically assume you can't ship brain or spinal cord. Okay wherever you're going. It's almost every state now. There's a few exceptions, but it's almost every state. So if you're doing a lot of that, train yourself to do that, at least that first step of field preparation. Okay. And it's going to have some dividends too. A, it's going to give you options where to send to. And B, um, it's actually going to help protect the hides from slippage. A lot of guys, a lot of hunters, you get it. They, they take the body off, they get the meat prepared and take it to the butcher. They do it themselves, whatever it is. And then they go around for a day or two and show off the rack. And meanwhile, it's decaying. And they've got to then get, they, they're forced to use local tax because they got, they got to take it somewhere. Um, so by knowing how to do that one simple step, you don't have to turn the ears, you don't have to do all the detail work. You just got to be able to get it off the face. 
have a sawzall or a bone saw, a handsaw, cut the skull. Okay. Now you can wrap the skin and freeze it. It's much smaller. You don't need a chest freezer. You're not putting a rack in there. The rack can be allowed to dry out. There's no brains on it. The hide can be frozen. And now you can, you can have a small bundle, right? So you have a deer cape the size of a football, basketball, depending on it's late season or early season, right? That's something you can overnight someplace or second day. What I recommend, and the horns can sit separately, right? You can hang on to the horns for a while if you want or send them along ground. A um, couple things I, I recommend. A, use coolers um, for shipping vessels of your hide as opposed to a cardboard box. So you can go to a Target or Walmart or whatever, hardware store, buy an inexpensive plastic-sided cooler that's big enough to fit your cape, which now is manageable because you've taken the skull out, right? Small. You can put it in there. If you are in a neighboring state where you're going, second day is usually fine. I use duct tape to seal the, the, the cooler um, and you ship it just like a box. Are you adding any, uh, not ice, but any gel pack, anything like that? You can't. Yes. Cool? So it depends on, again, common sense rules, right? So if it's the dead of winter, and you have a frozen hide and it's going close and you're going to do second day, you can probably get away with nothing. Or if there's a lot of airspace in the package, newspaper or paper helps insulate. If you need to ship further, if the ambient temperature is a little higher, then go with dry ice or gel pack. You know, there's all these food services now shipping dinners to go all over the country and they're doing it ground to keep costs down. And they're doing it with essentially coolers mm -hmm. cardboard and, and, and styrofoam but they're making coolers and they're using gel packs so a hunter can do the exact same thing and um you know again a savvy hunter would have gel packs much easier to get than dry ice it's getting harder and harder to find dry ice for a lot of people um but those gel packs are great you can keep in your freezer they're ready to go i have my shop here if i need to send skulls they're a little iffy um so that's first and foremost um, the money you save in buying the cooler um, could save your cape, and it can mean the difference between going overnight or second day. And I found since COVID, there's no such thing as overnight. Mm -hmm. um, I, I send stuff overnight, and how people send stuff overnight always ends up being two day. And that may be because I'm in Montana and there's fewer flights, but I think that's something you have to expect. So that's that's really the the, the logistics of something in the lower 48, and that works for bears it works for mountain lions it works for elk the key is you're not shipping a carcass and you're not shipping a rack mm -hmm. and you could pretty much do anything that way um and i i was doing that i did a texas hunt 2003 and when i got there i would ask the outfitter hey um i lived in reno at the time so hey how, how are you shipping stuff they said well we don't we have a local tax service come and they pick everything up and they do it all. I said, okay. And I didn't want to leave with the local tax. I want to send my tax service, but I didn't know who they were. And that's part of the problem too. You go on a hunt, that outfitter has some relationship. It may not be in your best, it may be in his best interest. It likely is in his best interest. Right. It may, it may be okay for you. It might, it might be great, but they also might not. And a lot of people find themselves in situations where tax is concerned, where, it actually got kind of roped into something they weren't prepared for. And so they end up going along for a ride and they find out, boy, I felt like I had no choice. 
but I really know what to do. So in that case, I did what I'm telling you. Instead of drinking beer one night after the harvest, right, I just kicked my deer out. I got into a small little part of Texas whitetails, like the size of a grapefruit when it's all skinned out. Put it in the refrigerator freezer and just nothing, right, where the ice cubes are. And I put it in a Tupperware tote that I bought at Walmart, duct tape, 20 bucks. And I shipped it to myself before I left. And um, no problems, right? And I actually was able to put the rack in the box, the whitetail small rack. Um, so that's really before internet was really popular, right? You know, yeah. 20 years ago, it was not so easy. So now here's what I recommend you do if you're in a guided hunt, even in the lower 48. Um, and, and it seems simple, but people don't do it. What's that outfitters, if you're going on a guided hunt, say, could be deer hunter, on out, or whatever it is. What's that outfitters uh, protocol for dealing with that, that animal? And I think you'll find most of the time they're going to say, well, I don't want to deal with it at all. So I'm just going to pawn it off on somebody I've arranged is willing to do it. Now, then you got to say, okay, tell me who that is. Mm-hmm. Now you got the internet, you can look them up. And you can look, maybe you can see the website, you can call them, you can see what they do, you can find them on social media. You go, am I comfortable leaving this here in this case? Yes, I am. They look pretty good. I'm happy with that. Or not so much. Then you can, before you go, you can be prepared. And if you just learn what I've said, you now have your own control. You can choose to leave it if it benefits you, or you can choose to do something else with it if it benefits you. Um, and the benefit of being on a guided hunt, at least, there's usually a second person that's somewhat knowledgeable to help, but you can't even count on that. <laughs> yeah, not always. Yeah. Not always. Yeah. Especially, especially like in the case of my whitetail story, those guys had somebody that would drive out like a couple times a week. Well, they got to be really complacent. The guides just didn't, I mean, they would, they would gut them. You know, they would help you, you know, get the meat out. But basically, they were done. And because they had provided you an alternative that suited them. And so, you know, you either accepted it or you figured out plan B, but they were giving it to you. And that's fair if the outfitter to do. But in this day and age of information, you shouldn't have any surprises. Nor should you on your on on your your goat hunt. So for instance, Alaska is is kind of like a foreign country. You know, it's in the United States, but it's a whole unique set of circumstances logistically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not so easy to just do it. A lot of airlines don't want to take it, it becomes problematic. Um, it depends on whether your outfitter, like for instance, there's some boat operators for goats and bears, because they have the they have the capacity to freeze. Some of these goat outfits um, in southeastern Alaska, for instance, once that goat's taken, or black bear, brown bear, doesn't matter, they'll get the carcass out and body. And they have freezers on the boat. They can put the head, the paws, everything. And now you have a much harder thing to ship. Mm-hmm. So you got to know what they're, they're doing. Now, I also have um, an expediting company that I own. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Tell us about it. It's unique because um, I wanted to speak about Alaska specifically because it's there's probably more guys treating that as their destination hunt in this audience than international. And then you do have a particular service that um, I was unaware of till I heard about you guys and started looking. It sounds yeah. like it could be very helpful. Right. So I have a company called Alaskan Expeditors. Um, it's one of about, I want to say there's about four, there may be others, but four major expediting firms up in Alaska. 
all of which are run, to my knowledge, by tax credit companies. Okay. Um, and what what we provide, um, and they're all a little different. So again, do some homework. Ask your outfitter. Your outfitter might say, well, I use ABC company. And then you say, oh, perfect. And call ABC company. What's your protocol? And again, so, what, so for me, what I've done with the expediting is if the outfitter has a relationship with us, or if you simply have a relationship with us, um, if you notify us before you go, we'll provide Tyvek tote tags, um, laminated tags, um, things for ID for air cargo. So let me give you an example. Guy goes, very popular destination is Kodiak. Okay, Kodiak for deer, for goats, for bears. Okay. So Hunter goes to Kodiak Island, Alaska. Let's say he should go. Okay, I've been twice. I'm addicted. I'm going again next year. I love it. <laughs> okay. So Kodiak, what typically will happen in Kodiak is you'll you're gonna have to go to Anchorage to get home, pretty much. There's no other options, right? And Kodiak has great air cargo services to Anchorage. They're flying there multiple times a day, weather permitted. So you have one of our, you've called, Hunter's called ahead. They've made their plans. They've greased their skids. They know what they're doing. We've provided the, the informational tags. So you get your goat. You take an extra tote or duffel to ship it in. Um, maybe the outfitter provides it. You've checked ahead so you know what you're doing. Okay. Um, you get to... You get to the airport yourself to go to uh, Anchorage to come home, right? You walk right around the corner to air cargo. You take your salted goat because you've been on a guided hunt and they're providing that service. You called ahead and you know that's what's going to happen. You've got your Tyvek tag on the outside of the tote that has all of Alaskan Expeditors information, for instance, in this case. You drop it off with air cargo destination Anchorage. They take it. You go catch on your flight and you go home and forget about it. The goat arrives in Anchorage. They, the air cargo calls the number on the tag. We dispatch a courier to go pick it up. And any other work that needs to be done with it, we take care of. So you, sorry, I missed a link. I think you're dropping that off at air cargo in Kodiak. In Kodiak. You are the hunter. Yes, right. But then it's. Or your outfitter is. Right. And then it's picked up and going to Anchorage. Obviously, exactly. with all the information that's been prearranged for your service specifically. Right. Okay. And this okay. works the same if you're hunting out of the Brooks Range. Let's say you're doing Fairbanks or you're doing wherever you're going. Anchorage is I'll be, not. I'll be selfish. Can I do that from Juneau? Okay. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so where are you? Where's your location? Where are you hunting? So I'm flying. My last commercial flight is into Juneau and then I'm taking a charter out of there. Okay. So here's what you're going to do. So if you're going to use our service... We would provide those that information for you. You'll need to contact your outfitter because you're not flying. And that outfitter, I promise you, is geared to sending everything to Anchorage because, let's say 100%, but 90% chance they're using, they're either using us already or they're using one of the other services that are similar to ours up there in Anchorage. So what they're going to do is you're going to come home. They're going to put your goat on cargo and send it up. And it depends on the outfitter. So I have some out of Juno that are these boat hunts because it's popular in that area. And they may send those goats frozen air cargo. 
And Alaska is great about that because they're hauling all this fish all the time, right? So they have cold storage. So that goat may not be salted. It may not even be skinned. The hooves may be in it. The head may be in it. Um, it may be in a little bundle that they ship after you go home and they may wait till the end of the season. Again, these are all questions for you to ask. What's the protocol? Mm-hmm. And then if you don't like the protocol, then you interject yourself. If you feel comfortable and common sense tells you this makes sense, you know, and I'm comfortable with what they're telling me, then they would do it. Now you can say, look, I would prefer to use this company. They may say, no, we're just not going to do that we have this relationship and we're going to do it. Then again, I go back to take the time to say, well, who are you sending it to? Oh, they're based out of the East coast. And I'm in, I'm in the West coast. And now my goat's going to end up all the way across the country. Now I'm going to have to get it from here. And that doesn't really work for me. Or, or if it does, what's this going to entail? So you do that homework. Um, but in the case of those Juno hunts, uh, those Southeast Alaska hunts, what most likely will happen for you, Mark is, you, they will forward it on your behalf to Anchorage to you, be used by us or somebody else up there. Okay, and like I said, you may or may not have influence on where you have it go. You should have influence, but sometimes. But, um, and then the expediter takes it from there. So let's say this is a situation where your outfitter is a is a, is a boat operator that has no intention of skinning and salting this. Go- they can't. They're on a boat. There's nowhere to salt it. It's wet. Can't do it. They freeze it. So you really need the expedite service because now you have an animal that needs care. Your outfitter couldn't provide the care or won't provide the care. So now it goes to Anchorage. We pick it up. We let it fall. We skin the hooves. We skin the head. We, we, we pressure wash the skull. We flesh it. We salt it. We dry it. That could take a few weeks in Anchorage, depending on the time of year and how, how, how much the humidity is. And then we, we bundle that parcel to ship wherever you want to go. Now, in this case, for using us, we'd say we'd send it down to us. If uh, somebody says, well, I want to go to me personally, I'm not going to have it mounted. I just want it. We do that, too. Or they may say, I want to go to ABC Taxidermist in Pennsylvania. No problem. We'll ship it there. No questions asked. Um, that's the expedited service. And even though we're a taxidermist company owning it, there's no pressure on our part to, to do it. You know, the people have the choice where to go. Um, and I think that applies. I think it applies across the board. Um, but it's still helpful to know because different expediters do their shipments differently. Some wait till the end of the season, some barge to a location in the lower 48, um, then redisperse it. Um, what we do, what we found is best for us is we send it directly to where you want to go one at a time, not waiting till the end of the season. Um, ideally when things are running smoothly, Guys who hunt early get their trophies back early and they get them wherever they want. They can have them sent to that local tax service if they choose. You know, they can have it sent to that big company. Um, the, the trick becomes when you do a moose hunt up there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So everything else will fit in a box and ship UPS. You ask UPS FedEx, it could go either way. There's risk with both those companies, I will tell you. Um, if you are having something sent, UPS or FedEx, I, always elect for a considerable amount of insurance to be put on that parcel. They're not going to pay it out if it's lost. Just everybody needs to know that. Like if you put $5,000 on a, on a sheet cake, they're, they, they're not going to pay you $5,000, but you may get enough to get to buy a replacement cake, which might be $1,500. They're not just going to write you a blank check. You're going to have to prove that the replacement 
And that, that replacement value? does not that replacement does not mean a free chip to go back on a belt sheet part. It means to replace with like horns and cape. You know, you may not be happy with that. And I don't blame anybody. I would not be either. But that's the law. And that's the legal precedent. So it's best. And it feels like everything gets so expensive, right? You're just like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. it's this, it's this, it's this. But again, like I said in the beginning, if that final product, that aspect is important to you, then you got to suck it up and do it. And if you're going to use FedEx or UPS, at least put 2500 bucks on it. Um, I find they're more inclined not to lose it. Yeah. Because they will lose it. <laughs> Some special attention is given. Yeah. Every now and again, something happens. So, um, so that's, I hopefully I answered that question. Super now, if it's, a moose, yep. if it's a moose, if you have some moose hunters out there going, well, what about me? I got this 60, 70 inch rack. Be prepared. You're going to have to pay for a crate. We'll have to go by barge. It will come to Seattle and then it will come by truck, wherever that is. You know, whether that's here or wherever you go. So if you're hunting moose in Alaska, be prepared you could be looking at a couple thousand dollars to get that moose home, you know, and that's part of that. It's the expense of that hunt. And so you should not be surprised if you've done that homework, you know, cause that's where I find most people get upset or they're discouraged is because they put all the emphasis on those first two things. My gun shooting. Perfect. I bought all the latest rain gear. I'm, I'm so spiffy looking. I'm all color coordinated. <laughs> all my airline tickets. Yeah. I, I researched my guide to death. And then they get there and they go, I got this great moose. And then they go, now what? Yep. You thought about it. Somebody and then you're on a time crunch and you don't have the time to do research or vetting. And or, you have yeah. a perishable thing. Yep. And that's the crazy part about it. And, and so... Um, if there's one takeaway where our conversation for taxidermist is do your best to build that relationship with the taxidermist um, way in advance. And ideally, if you're lucky and you chose somebody that you really is clicking for you, make nurture that relationship with your taxidermist, maintain it. You know, if they let you down, then by all means, you got to move on. Um, but that should be, an equal part of your hunt preparation is that, and they may not know your specific logistical needs, but they might. And that's that one extra piece of information. Um, If you align yourself with a company that is more diverse that way, the chances that they're going to be able to help you is greater. You know what I mean? Than say the guy who's, you can't expect somebody who's used to having everything dropped off you know, at their doorstep. Yeah. Right. Yep. Deer no dropped, you know, that's their, that's their bread and butter. Well, you can't expect them to know how to get your trophies home. From all I mean, that's just unrealistic. Um, and for something like that, if that hunter's going, well, I'm going to do my first safari. What do I expect? You know, th- you should probably consider finding that different relationship for that hunt. If nothing else for that hunt, you know, hunts like that. Um, and I mentioned earlier, USDA is part of the logistical process. And a lot of people don't know what that what that means. But for instance, if you were to go to Mexico, as uh, a big one, um, pretty much anywhere overseas at, across the board, you may be required to have that parcel sent to a USDA facility. 
And the odds that that, that local regional guy is USDA approved is about zero because it's expensive. You have to have your facilities inspected. They're not going to approve you in your house. Um, so there's a lot of paperwork that needs to be done. You have to prove a way to dispose of these crates in a way that they deem appropriate. So if you're an international person, your taxidermist needs to be a USDA approved facility. That should be part of your research. Um, there will be some guys that say, no problem. My tannery is. Mm. That's a way for a smaller shop to bypass that. Um, that's better than nothing. But if you're doing a lot of international stuff, a lot of overseas stuff, and it could even be just going to Mexico a lot. Like I have guys that go to Mexico every year for, for, for mule deer and do stuff like that. Um, you can't even bring the turkeys back from, from Mexico. You know, like the, you need a USDA facility. If the tannery is, the problem with that mark is um, the tax service is not opening the crate. A third party that doesn't know the hunter is. And their responsibility is not really to the hunter. They don't know the hunter. They have no relationship with the hunter. They have a relationship with the tax service, maybe. And I guarantee you that's even going to be uh, a long-distance relationship, right? Um, and so there may be problems with the crates that, uh, that don't get uh, inventory correctly, notified correctly, and the tax service who's using that tannery service may not know there's a problem for months, and then it can be too late. So if, if you're that type of hunter, align yourself with the right caliber tax terms in your search, mm -hmm. wherever that is. You know. And that should be one of those things you put on your mental checklist. Yeah. So many of these, obviously these hunts, even for guys like myself, who's more of a blue collar guy, and it's a, it's a unique opportunity to have a hunt, uh, a guided hunt. All that, there's so much pre-planning that goes to the hunt. As you said before, the first phase and the second phase, it's like all of that time that you're spending, just make all of this taxidermy research, whether it's choosing the taxidermist, the logistics of transport, it just needs to be part of it. So if you're going to you know, a show to talk to outfitters or you're calling outfitters, you need to be doing the same thing before the hunt for all this taxidermy. I do it all the time. So as I mean, I can't tell you how many times. And so like the conversation I'm having with you, um, I have similar conversations with clients all the time. And I'll have a client call me and say, I'm going to this location. What do you recommend? And it may be someplace I've been, or it may be someplace that I know, even if I haven't been. And I'll say, look, X, Y, Z is what you're going to do. If it's someplace I haven't, if I don't have the knowledge, then I'll give them some advice on where to find it. Um, and sometimes I'll spend a considerable amount of time with my clients trying to figure it out. And part of what I do, and like when you're one of your first questions to me, is like, what kind of hunt do you like? Sometimes as a business owner, I also look for things that might, might be of some relevance to my clients too. Yeah. So, so for instance, it's like, I want to do this too, but I also really need to know because I need to know. So, I put off hunting a leopard for most of my life. It's always just something I didn't want to spend the money on. I didn't want to spend the money. And part of it was I just got to a point where I said, you know, it's time. It's now or never. I'm going to do it. And also part of me said, you know, you need yourself to go through what the clients are going through to import this CITES animal, right? Because there's a whole other 
echelon of paperwork that goes along with importing an animal like that. Now that could be the same for an Asian sheep, it could be the same for lots of animals fall in this category. Um, and if you're gonna run a business like mine, it, it really is important to know, and, and there's no better way to know than to go through it. So once you do this, your goat hunt, you'll kind of be at least pretty educated from your personal experience, right? So it's kind of like, I don't know if you ever heard doctors say, when they're doing a, a appendix removal, they say, watch one, do one, teach one, right? First one, you watch somebody else doing it. The next one, you do it yourself. The next one, you can teach somebody else how to do it. So that applies to this too. So you're getting, in, you're reaching out to get the information just to find out what to do on your hunt. Mm-hmm. The next time you deal with it, you're going to have actually lived it. The next time you can tell your friends, this is what I experienced. You can pass that on. And you become more informed and the next hunt you go on, you know, hopefully you do another hunt up North and it's guided or whatever. You may have to tweak that knowledge, but you're still building on knowledge. You already gained hundred percent. Yep. And you've been through it and you've been like, Hey, you know, I tell people now, say, Hey, you know, right now we got this, we got this dock issue in ports and people are having to pay extended storage fees more commonly than they did in the past. And so I've lived this. <laughs> so I try to tell my guys, look, just be prepared. You know, you may spend a thousand bucks in storage, you know, because fish and wildlife and customs can't get to your parcel. And the airline does not care who you are. They're charging 150 bucks a day. Every day that crate sits on their dock. And there's not a lot of choices there, you know. So those are all things that, you know, make a more knowledgeable hunter. And if you're the kind of hunter who's fortunate enough that, has the business or the clout to go and do lots of things. Um, those guys are wealth of knowledge too. That's a great point. This has been so good. I could keep you on here all day. Um, if you're up for it, I'd love to do a part two at some point. Sure, um, you know, what are the big questions that I have personally? And again, put myself in listener shoes. It's like, okay, now we will consider using a taxidermist who's states away. What have you, how do we go about, working together like very practically right so when it comes to me it's like all right uh just use my context for my mountain goat like what are my options where is it going what's going to be helpful to you as the taxidermist to to communicate effectively what i'm envisioning or maybe i don't even know what the possibilities are right so um that's a whole different conversation if you're up for it i'd love to have that at some point and again hit record because it's so applicable to guys listening yeah, no, and then you're right. It is a whole nother. And I'll just give you just a, a brief overview. That's why having a website, having a catalog, having examples, and with this new technology, being able to communicate text, FaceTime, put me, put the tax terms in your home. This is where I think I want to put it. Do they have the artistry to say, ah, well, in that location, I would suggest this. And here's an example of one I've done that's similar. And we would make this tweak and that tweak and make it perfect for your space. So that is a good conversation to have. And there's a lot of tools now that we didn't used to have. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely a conversation we can have. And that gets in custom tax for me too. Yeah, I, that's, yeah. You've seen some of the questions I had that go that direction because that is a question. And, I had. and again, just in like a, just as just a little snippet, a lot of people use the word custom really loosely, mm-hmm. but in taxidermy, we have standard forms we can buy. 
we all try to get as close as we can. But if you want to make that goat fit your location, that taxidermist has got to be able to and willing to modify it to not only fit your goat, but to fit your spot. And that's where the customer comes in. Yeah, perfect. To leave listeners with info, if they want to check it out today, uh, can you provide us website, social media, even maybe the the export service from Alaska? I know that a ton of guys will be very interested in that. Can you kind of give us the information on where to go? Yeah. So for me personally, um, if somebody wants to see what I do, um, I think Instagram is the best because I'm doing that really. I try to do it daily, but it doesn't work out that way all the time, but really current stuff. And that's at Monarch Taxidermy. So they can see all the types of projects behind the scenes and taxidermy to the trophy room stuff. Even if it's not something that's something they're going to ever do. A lot of people love just to see what other people are doing. Um, I do have a website. It's actually going to be updated here um, this summer uh, before the summer's out. And it'll be an updated catalog. And maybe we can at some point in the next meeting, we can actually have a discussion how. And other taxidermists have websites like this, too. So it's not just mm -hmm. me that you you know, the, the hunter can use the website as a tool to help because it's hard to choose, mm -hmm. you know, what the options are. Um, my current website is uh, monarchtaxidermyinc.com. So it's monarchtaxidermyinc.com. And um, and I do have a pretty just, uh, diverse catalog in there, but I haven't added new to it in about two years in preparation of building this massive new site, which is all tailored for what you're asking. It's helping people. It's basically a tool to help people pick what they want to do more so than just learning about us. It's, and I'll even have, and I've actually hired a, a local artist from Idaho, actually great young lady who's just an up and comer and a guide and how to do all professional drawings and field care. So those oh, are links cool. that people can do to know where the cuts are for different types of dorsal and ventral. And these are all discussions we can have later about super taxes. helpful because that pertains to what you're doing too and how you pose it. You know, no. people ask me all the time, do you dorsal it or ventral it? And it depends on what you want. And so if you know what pose you want ahead of time, it helps to make those decisions. So thought for another conversation. Yeah, that's great. I'm looking forward to it. I'll um, leave links in the show description so listeners can find it. Uh, thanks for the time today and looking forward to having that follow-up conversation here in the future. Sounds good. It was nice talking to you. Well, that is a wrap on this one for now. In the weeks since we recorded this conversation, we did schedule and are releasing a follow-up with Stuart to answer more questions um, that I had for him and that you guys had as well. We reached out on Instagram to get a feel for some listener questions that they would want to hear from Stuart and the crew at Monarch Taxidermy. So look for that second episode to come next week with Stuart. If you want to receive that automatically, be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button in your podcast app. If you have any questions for us, send an email to podcast at exomongear.com and we'll talk to you soon.